Good morning. We get to preach and learn, and I get to teach on the Lord's Prayer, um, arguably the most um, well-known prayer um, over the last 2,000 years, um, the Lord's Prayer. I'm not sure why it's called the Lord's Prayer, uh, because it's really not a prayer that our Lord Jesus prayed, but it's a prayer that he taught his disciples, uh, you and I, to pray. In fact, this prayer is the one that Jesus, being sinless, actually couldn't pray because it actually says to forgive us our sins, and Jesus was sinless, as we know. So the better and more accurate way to describe this prayer would be the disciples' prayer because that's what it is. It's teaching his disciples what to pray. So we're going to see today that Jesus will instruct his disciples then and his disciples today, followers of Jesus, what the aim of prayer is, what we should aim at when we pray, when we pray, excuse me, and invite us to pray with both boldness and confidence. Let's pray. God, we thank you that um, for your life-giving, transforming word. And we thank you that, um, that every word of it is, is breathed out by your spirit. And I pray, God, that as, um, as I speak from Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 13, on your great instructions to your disciples then and today, God, I pray that we would be overcome, be overcome with the reality that the eternal God who created the universe, who spoke the cosmos into existence, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who parted the Red Sea, that we can approach you and call you Father. What a mind-blowing truth that is. So, Father, I pray that we'd be reminded of your love for us. We'd be reminded of our uh, sonship and that we would be um, just compelled to live our lives in communion with you. We love you, and I pray, God, that you'd be honored and glorified this morning and that we would be edified. And God's people said, amen. I want to make a few observations up front. I've made these observations over the last few weeks, um, and that is that Luke is not so concerned about chronological order in his writing. He uh, puts... Um, thoughts together that build on other thoughts. He is actually a genius on putting um, uh, historical, uh, documented uh, situations in the life of Jesus together in ways that would train us. Um, so he's, 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 uh, he's methodical in grouping related items together. Um, he's not concerned about the chronology. Uh, therefore, Luke places Jesus' teaching today on prayer in a place that would round out, uh, round out his, his overall teaching on discipleship. And um, when I was going to preach twice in a row, and by God's grace, I got to preach three times in a row, and also by God's grace is that these three sermons that I've been able to preach the last three weeks are all connected. Um, obviously, all the scripture is connected, but it's really um, on discipleship that if you remember that started off with the parable of the Good Samaritan. And the lesson there was to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and what? To love our neighbor as ourself. And then last week we saw um, the, the uh, uh, scenario of Martha and Mary. And really the, the, the lesson there is that Mary chose the better portion. 
that she did what was essential, and that was sitting at the feet of Jesus, um, listening and learning through his, his word. So love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength to love our neighbors ourselves, then to um, take in, be intakers of the word of God. And then today is to respond to God, to, to our, our conversation with God. We, we hear from God from his word, and we can speak to God from, uh, in prayer. Um, all the gospel writers, Matthew, uh, Mark, Luke, and John, all of them talk about prayer, talk about Jesus praying. But Luke seems to have a particular focus on prayer, and he includes more inst- instances of Jesus praying than all the other gospels. Luke mentions Jesus praying 11 different times and observes Jesus teaching his disciples to pray nine different times. Jesus prayed before choosing the 12 disciples. He prayed after healing a leper. He prayed that Peter's um, faith would not fail him. Uh, Jesus was fully God and fully man, yet he practiced the pattern of prayer. He practiced the pattern of communing with his heavenly Father. So I grew up Roman Catholic, um, and I witnessed people praying all the time. One of the most common patterns of prayer that I observed was something called the rosary. And the rosary involved reciting words with a quickness of repetition that blew my mind. Like, I never learned to pray the rosary because there was too much memorization involved, and I failed everything that involves memorization. I feel like God protected me from that. Praying the rosary involved reciting words with a quickness and a repetition that just went on and on. One month out of the year, devout Catholics would pray the rosary every day. And that's no small task because here's what praying the rosary involved. It it consists of praying 53 Hail Marys, six Our Fathers, and six Glory Bees um, over and over and over again. I also got to experience something called the sacrament of confession. And that, what, that, what that was is that you would show up periodically, I think when your sins, when your, your guilty conscience had just was overflowing, I'm not sure how often that was, it really was like every couple of hours for me, but I would go in like every three or four hours um, into this church um, where the lights were dim, and I'd walk into a dark box, um, I would shut the door, and a window would would open, but you couldn't see through the window. It was a, it was a screen. I, I'm pretty sure you could see me, and I would confess my sins to a man that I didn't know. And then he would assign me prayers that I didn't understand, and I would pray to a God that I didn't know, and I never really stopped to ponder the meaning of why I was saying these words. I just assumed that these prayers would somehow uh, keep evil away from me and conjure up some type of blessing. And I would submit to you that some of us, that's our prayer life today, that we think it's, that prayer is just simply some type of exercise to keep evil away or conjure up some type of blessing from God, a distant God. And after becoming a Christian, I still didn't fully understand the, the aim or the purpose of prayer. I knew it was important, I saw other people doing it, but I didn't really understand the purpose or the aim of my prayers, so I developed an in-priority complex. How about you? How is your prayer life? What is your understanding of the purpose of prayer? 
What or who is your aim in prayer? Is God a distant genie in a bottle that you summons up when you're in a jam? I had some notes written down here that I actually erased, but I'm going to say them just from memory because I... Our view of God the Father is oftentimes shaped by our view of our earthly father. And I'm wondering, like, when you pray to the Father, what is your imagination of his countenance towards you? Like, oh, here here he comes again. Same request. Or don't come to me until your act is together. What is your imagination of the countenance of the Father. I'm going to submit to you that the Father beckons you to come. If you have been saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, that the Father welcomes you in any condition of your heart, no matter what you did yesterday or what you might do tomorrow, that he wants communion with his sons and daughters. Let me give you a definition of prayer. Prayer in its simplest form is speaking to God. It's a means of pursuing a deeper relationship with our Heavenly Father and asking Him to provide the things needed. Don't miss this. The things needed to thrive as disciples of Jesus Christ. Today, whatever your prayer life looks like, I pray that you would have an increasing confidence that your Heavenly Father desires communion with you and He delights He delights to give you the desires of your heart. And as a result, I pray that you would shamelessly and boldly approach him no matter the time of day or night and regardless of your current situation. I've structured this today as the ABCs of prayer. Verses 1 through 4, we're going to see the aim of prayer. In verses 5 through 8, we're going to see a call to be bold in prayer. And then we're going to see verses 9 through 13. We're going to see um, confidence in prayer. First, the aim. The passage today starts out with, now Jesus was praying. Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, is praying to the Father. His disciples saw him often. This wasn't a one-off that they experienced. His 12 apostles and other disciples saw Jesus um, continually uh, withdrawing to pray to the Father. But this is the first time where it's documented where the disciples asked Jesus to teach them how to pray. So they waited until he was finished praying, and then they approached him and said, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. That's John the Baptist. And it's not clear um, why they wanted Jesus to teach them what John prayed or what John taught his disciples. We do know that, that Jewish religious leaders and their followers customarily had distinctive prayers. And John the Baptist might have had some distinctive prayers that he taught his disciples. Bottom line is this. Jesus' followers wanted to know how and what to pray. So the question is, is what is our aim of prayer? What did he teach them the aim of prayer should be? So Jesus responded, when you pray... Say this, when you pray, not if you pray or when you get time to pray or when you learn to pray, it's when you pray. We're created for prayer. 
were created uh, because prayer is the purest manifestation of our relationship with the Father. And we're created for relationship. Therefore, we're created for prayer. See, God speaks to us through his word and we speak to him in prayer. And prayer is both a divine expectation and it's a glorious privilege. It's a divine summons to the throne room, but more importantly, it's a royal invitation for Christians, no matter our condition, to come to the Father in all of our neediness. You see, God's beloved children can come to him with boldness and confidence, thanking and praising him and crying out in the midst of trials, petitioning him for our needs and the needs of others. But the Lord's Prayer is not just a prayer. It's a vision for life in Christ's inbreaking kingdom. And that's really the point of this sermon. The Lord's Prayer is not just meant to be prayed. It's meant to be lived. J.I. Packer had this to say about the Lord's Prayer. He says, the Lord's Prayer is a key to the whole business of living. Adding, what it means to be a Christian is nowhere clearer than in this prayer. And in the aim of this prayer, we see five requests that inform the way that we're to live as followers of Jesus. But first, um, Jesus directs us to the one in whom our prayers are aimed at and why it matters. And when you pray, Jesus said, he said, say, Father. This This is massive. Somebody asked me the other day, is prayer really about relationship? Is is that, does does the scripture say that? If we can call God the Father, the eternal creator of the universe, the sovereign one, if he he invites us to call him Father, it's all about relationship. Some have tried to make the case that God is Father to all. And rightly saying that we do owe, every human being owes owes, owes their existence to God. But that's never how Jesus spoke of God the Father. Only spirit-filled followers of Jesus get to call God Father. Praying to to God as Father is not a human right. It's a spiritual privilege for the people of God who've been born again by the Spirit of God. Praying to our Father reminds us that by faith in the shed blood of Jesus, for the forgiveness of our sins, we have been adopted into his forever family. And we are loved no less than his only begotten son, Jesus. We are probably all too familiar with this prayer to marvel at Jesus' instruction to pray to God the Father. Listen to what Kevin DeYoung brings us face to face with in regards to our Father. The God of the universe the God who made the world out of nothing, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the ten plagues in the Red Sea, the God of the glory of the cloud in the tabernacle, the God who shakes the cedars of Lebanon, the God who showed himself to Daniel as a great ancient of days, the God that no one can stand face to face with and live, Jesus wants us to call that God Father. That blows me away. The eternal God, the, uh, the, the eternal God, the Father, can be known Listen to this excerpt from um, uh, John 17.3. This is the high priestly prayer that Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus prays this to the Father. And this is eternal life, he's praying to the Father, that they know you, Father, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You want to know what eternal life is? It's knowing the Father. 
It's, and, and knowing is, it's a Greek word, genesko, which is intimacy. It's the most intimate knowledge of the creator of the universe. You see, God knows you and me, and he knows our needs, and he wants us to know him in the most personal and intimate manner. He knows our needs. When our children were young, I knew them so well that I knew what they needed before they even opened their mouths. But you know what? I wanted them to open their mouths and ask anyway. I longed for them to express to me their fears and their desires and to verbalize their thoughts and their feelings. You see, their vulnerability and their honesty deepened our relationship together. Our Heavenly Father is neither ignorant of our needs or hesitant to meet them. He invites followers of Jesus into a deeper relationship, and that relationship is fostered by communicating with him. And prayer is our primary way of communicating with the Father. He will always hear the prayers of his children, and he will either give us what we ask for or give us what we would have asked for if we knew everything that he knows. But he will always give us what he knows we need. He will always hear the prayers of his children, and he will either give us what we ask for or give us what we would have asked for if, he knew, if, if we knew everything he knows. But he will always give us what he knows we need. Understanding the Father's acceptance, accepting love for us is the spark and fuel of prayer. We don't pray to be accepted. We pray out of our acceptance. Now here in, starting in the second half of verse 2, Jesus instructs us to aim at five requests that inform the way we are to live as followers of Christ. And the first request is not that our personal needs be met, but that the name of the Father be hallowed. And the hallow simply means to make holy or consider as holy. Father, hallowed be your name. Father, glory be your name. One commentator said this, Praying this, hallowed be your name, is asking that God act in such a way that he visibly demonstrates his holiness and his glory. By praying, hallowed be your name, we're asking that not only would God's glory be manifest, don't miss this, we're not just praying that God's glory be manifest in the world, in our systems, in the government, in the schools, but especially we're praying that his name be hallowed in our own hearts and attitudes and actions. God's name is hallowed when his people learn and follow his teaching. God's name is hallowed by living out the great commandment, loving God and loving other people. God's name is, the Father's name is hallowed when we humbly walk the way of the cross, serving, loving, and forgiving others and conducting ourselves as redeemed image bearers. We hallow the Father by the power of the Spirit, for the glory of God, for the good of other people, and for our increasing joy. So our greatest joy should be to hallow the name of the Father and make his name famous by loving God and loving others in both word and in deed. The next aim of 
our prayer is the Father's kingdom. After hallowed be the Father's name, it's your kingdom come. The kingdom involves three elements. A king, his rulership, and the people he rules. In Mark 1.15, after Jesus launched his public ministry, his very first words documented by Mark are these. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. You see, the kingdom is here. The kingdom isn't heaven in some distant place. The kingdom is now. It's near and it's coming. Scholars have referred to this as the already but not yet kingdom of God. The kingdom is here now, but it's not yet here fully. It's not yet perfected. People enter the kingdom of God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The kingdom is established and it will one day be perfected. In praying your kingdom come, we're acknowledging that our Father is the sovereign king over the universe. And he has complete and total authority over all things on earth. We're asking that his kingdom rule would grow in our hearts and that we would willingly and joyfully submit to his perfect will, not our own. You see, when you pray your kingdom come, it actually starts with us. Are we living in submission, in joyful submission to his kingdom? Are we building his kingdom or are we building our own kingdom? Kingdom citizens manifest the kingdom of God when we surrender our lives to the lordship of Jesus and we're empowered by the Holy Spirit to display, display the character of Jesus in everything we do. When God's will is done in and through his kingdom citizens, the kingdom is manifest. To pray that his kingdom come is to pray that it may grow through our submission to his good and perfect rule and our loving witness to the surrounding uh, world. And, we'll, and it will be consummated when Jesus returns to set up his eternal power and reign. So this reminds us to, yes, live on mission and pray for those without hope and also long for the day when Jesus will return. That day when the kingdom will be perfected and there will be no more sin, there will be no more suffering, and there will be no more tears. For the Christian, our top priority is not our name. It's not our kingdom. It's not our will. It's not our nation. But it's God's kingdom, God's will. And so we pray that his kingdom rule would grow in our hearts and we would willfully and joyfully submit to his perfect will by loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving our neighbor as ourself. Now after the priorities of hallowing the name of the Father and praying that his kingdom come, the aim moves from hallowing the Father's name and submitting to his kingdom reign to praying for our need for provision, pardon, and protection. First, our provision. Verse 3, give us each day our daily bread. To pray, give us this day our daily bread, reminds us that we are utterly and fully dependent upon the Father for all of our daily material needs. I think we tend to forget this in Windsor, Colorado. 
most of us have our daily needs met. And if we need anything to meet our daily material needs, it's as close as a click of the computer or a fully stocked grocery store. You see, this is a prayer for our immediate material needs, not our distant needs. It reminds us to not worry about tomorrow for today has enough trouble of its own. It's also a call for us, for most of us here, to want, that our daily needs are met, to be thankful. When we pray, give us each day our daily bread, and we go, well, like, Lord, my, I don't even know what to pray for for today because all of my material needs have been met. There's food in the fridge. There's money in the bank. Praise be to God. Thank you, because I know that every good and perfect gift comes down from you, the Father of lights. Yes, thank you for the job that you've given me that helps provide that, but God, thank you for giving me that job. It should lead us to a, a heart of thankfulness. And if you would notice here in this prayer for provision, pardon, and protection, he's praying, give us our needs. Not give me my needs, give us our needs, which brings to mind the physical needs of our neighbors. Our neighbors here at WCC and in the big church, C church around the world. Just in the last week, here in this time of prosperity, in this community of prosperity, there are a couple of families in this church that needed help financially to meet their daily needs. And you know whose responsibility it is? You know who the one that says that he will meet the needs? is God the Father. You know who God the Father meets needs through? is the local church. So we have something here called the Compassion Fund. And the Compassion Fund, the Helping Hand Fund, the Benevolence Fund, is money that is given by you and me into this fund, and it is managed by a compassion team, and it's there to help people in this body meet their material needs. So that's a shameless plug for the Compassion Fund. If you have um, over and above money and you want to put money in that fund, you just go to the website, go to the giving tab. There's a drop-down box that says Compassion Fund. I also think about our neighbors in Niger, in Nigeria, uh, people that God has um, providentially um, allowed us to be neighbors to, neighbors of heart, if you will. Um, that we support them. And they live on about $325 a month. They are continually battling with, with malaria um, and um, polio's back on the scene. And they have needs that we can't even imagine. So let's not just be cognizant of our um, own material needs. Let's be thankful that our material needs have been met. And let's ask the Lord how he would want us to um, see people and care for people whose daily needs have not been met. So this, it's good and right for us, whenever our needs or circumstances, whatever they may be, to remember that we are utterly dependent, moment by moment, breath by breath, for our daily, daily provision granted by our gracious Heavenly Father. Our next need, our next P after provision is pardon. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. The Apostle Paul, in Colossians chapter 2, one of my, most, my favorite places in Scripture, 
he describes our sin as a record of debt that stood against us. In the Greco-Roman world, the record of debt was, written, was a written note of indebtedness. God himself, God the Father, has mercifully resolved this problem for all who put their faith in Jesus by taking this record of debt, taking this note of indebtedness and nailing it to the cross where Jesus paid our, full, our debt in full. Listen to Colossians chapter 2. And you... Every single follower of Christ, and you disciples, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses. How did he do that? By forgiving the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set it aside, nailing it to the cross. Praise God. Him for canceling the record of debt that stood against us having a relationship with the Father. You see, we have been forgiven of every past, present, and future sin. There's no more debt. Every time, um, every time we sin, it's canceled by the shed blood of Jesus. And living in the reality of daily forgive- forgiveness is as important to the soul and health as daily food is for the body. You see, the more that we soak in the reality and the great cost of our forgiveness, the more we will freely and willingly forgive others. Because it says here, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. What he's saying here is that we can forgive others because we have been forgiven. And when we live in the reality that we have been forgiven much, when we soak in that reality of the great cost of our forgiveness, we will freely and willingly forgive others of whatever sin they've committed against us. Forgiven people, don't miss this, forgiven people, if you know Jesus, you're forgiven. Forgiven people joyfully forgive others, regardless of the size of the debt. And when we come to grips with the twin truths that we are more sinful than we could ever imagine, yet at the same time more loved and accepted than we could ever hope, we will forgive others. And in doing so, when we forgive others, we're submitting to the Father's kingdom rule and we're hallowing his name. And I want to say one more thing here. Remember, this is not, a, this is not an individual prayer alone. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone. The greatest cancer, the greatest obstacle from, for that standing in the way of us accomplishing God's will is, is unforgiveness in our hearts. So we're to come alongside one another and remind one another of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ that canceled the record of death that stood against us and to patiently come alongside one another and encourage and train on how to forgive others. We've all been sinned against. If, if you're, you're an adult, you were raised by parents who were very imperfect. And many of us are walking around as adults with, uh, with um, unforgiveness in our hearts. We may not even recognize it to, um, to parents who raised us. And that type of unforgiveness is impeding your relationship with the Father. So we can help each other in this endeavor. Finally, Until God's kingdom is fully consummated, we need to understand that we are engaged in a spiritual battle. And therefore, we need what? The third P, 
protection. And lead us not into temptation. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, we receive a promise that we won't be tempted beyond what we are able to withstand. And we're promised that in temptation that the Father will always give us a way out. Listen to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation, believer, has overtaken you that is not common to man. What he's saying is that, that every human being has common, common temptations. God is faithful. Faithful you are. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So we don't pray, keep us from temptation. But we pray, don't let us be overcome by temptation. This is also not a prayer to be delivered from the evil world. For we are to be in the world, Christian. We're not to be of the world, but we're to be in the world. So we pray, Lord, help us be in the world, but not be overcome by the world. It's also a plea to guard us from the temptation of the evil one. It's praying, God, the Father, help us recognize the lies of the kingdom of this world and strengthen us to walk in your kingdom, in holiness, for your glory, in our joy, all of our days. And we, so we pray for one another. This is a communal prayer as well, because the person next to you is being tempted every single day. So we pray for one another. Help us overcome the temptation of the evil one. So the aim of this prayer is to hallow the Father's name, submit to the Father's reign, ask for our provision, pardon, and protection. Five parts. Hallow the Father's name, submit to the Father's reign, ask for our provision, pardon, and protection. Now Jesus, like, takes a hard right turn. And really, this sermon should have been preached in three sermons. We we had three sermons uh, at our Crossway Huddle um, just on the first part of this, and we're trying to uh, bite this all off in one Sunday. So I pray that the Lord would have us take away individually and collectively what, whatever it is he would have for us today. But here's, here's where Jesus goes next. He uses a parable to invite his disciples to bring our request to the Father shamelessly and boldly. These five requests, bring them to the Father shamelessly and boldly. And it would be easiest to understand this parable if we identify the three characters right up front. There's a guest, there's a host, and there's a neighbor. There's a guest, a host, and a neighbor. And I'm going to explain this parable before I read it. Jesus tells this parable where a guest arrives at a friend's house late at night. Arrives at the guest's house, and the uh, uh, at, at the host's house, a, a friend arrives at the host's house, and the host has nothing to feed him. And so the host goes to his friend's house, a neighbor's house, and knocks on the door at midnight and says, I need three loaves of bread because I have an unexpected guest that I need to feed. It's important to know that in that culture, 
Middle Eastern hospitality required that a host provide food for their guests. And I want to add to that, that that food was not readily available as it is today. There were no 24-hour shops, and bread was baked for the day. There wasn't any meal prep for the week. It was, food was prepared for the day. I know that sounds like a nightmare to some of you moms. Additionally, if a needy host with a guest called on his neighbor to loan him some food, the neighbor was under the obligation to respond. The host had not anticipated this guest coming late at night. And the situation is he's in desperate need. So he goes to a friend at midnight asking him to give three loaves of bread so he can feed his unexpected guest. Here we go. Verse 5. Which one of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend, a guest of mine, has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he, the neighbor, will answer from within the door, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up, I cannot give up, get up and give you anything. Then Jesus says, I tell you, though he, the neighbor, will not get up and give him, the host, anything because he is his friend. Yet because of the host's impudence, that the neighbor will rise and give him whatever he needs. The neighbor's not too pleased with the host knocking on the door as it's late and the kids are fast asleep. The neighbor rises, though, and gives the host what he needs, not because of his friendship, but because of the host's impudence, which means audacity or shamelessness or boldness. The host drives the neighbor to a desperate response. Some have tried to make this a lesson of persistence, but we actually don't see the host persisting in his knocking. It's the, it's the audacity that he would go to his neighbor at midnight when everybody's sleeping, probably in a one-room house on mats on the floor where the neighbor would have to actually crawl over the kids to answer the door. By telling this parable... Jesus invites his followers to approach the Father boldly and shamelessly with our requests. God, I want to make this clear here, God is not to be compared to the neighbor and his irritation, but contrasted to him, as we're going to see in verses 9 through 13. And in verses 9 through 13, we're going to be encouraged to approach the Father with confidence. Verse 9 Confidence in prayer. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. You see, Jesus is inviting his disciples to approach the throne of grace boldly and shamelessly, and now confidently, knowing that the Father both hears and cares for his children. 
And Jesus makes his point with three present imperatives. And he encourages his disciples to continually ask and seek and knock. Asking is an invitation to pray, to come. Come with your requests. Seeking is an invitation to pursue God and God the Father and his will. And knocking is the plea to experience his presence and blessings afresh. He promises this, that when we ask, we will receive. We go, well, that's not always what I've experienced. When we ask, we will receive. Not always what we want, but always what we need. And the more time that we spend with the Father in His Word and in prayer, our prayers, the things that we're asking for that we need are more aligned with what He wants us to have. Psalm 37.4 says this. It says, delight yourself in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. Enjoy your relationship with the Lord. Understand his will through his written word. Delight yourself in the Lord and what? He will give you the desires of your heart because your desires will start to match his desires for you. When we seek to know the Father and his perfect will, we will find him. When we knock on the door, he will fling it open and welcome us once again. Knock, Lord, I need you. I blew it again. And there's this, this picture of knocking, but the, what's in my mind, it's, a, it's an open door policy. You know, it's one of those deals where you walk into the, the, the door's open, and he's sitting in there, and you're like, you see him and you knock like this. It's not that you've got a beat on it to let, so he lets you in. You knock, and he'll fling it open and welcome us once again. But Jesus isn't quite finished with his lesson and encouragement to his disciples to be confident in prayer. He hammers his point home by reminding us that the Father gives good gifts to Jesus' followers. And you know what? He reminds us that we've already received the greatest gift we'll ever receive. And it's a gift that keeps on giving. Verse 11, he gives us a preposterous example to contrast um, the Father's love. He says, what father among you, what human father, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or when he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will our heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to, to those who ask him? You see, we see God's love for us when he is likened to a father whose son asks for a fish. No normal human father would give his son a serpent. So to no normal father, when his son asked for an egg, would give him a scorpion. And he goes on to say, he says, if, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, if human fathers love their sons like this, and the, and the vast majority do give good gifts to their sons, then even though all human fathers are sinful and give good gifts to their sons, we can be assured that our perfect heavenly Father will give us what we need when asked according to his will. We can be assured that he longs to give us good gifts. And you can take this to the bank. He won't always give you what you ask for. 
but he's always going to give you what you need. And I want to close with this because it's remarkable. Believer, you have already received the greatest gift that we could ever receive from our Heavenly Father. And as I said, it's the gift that keeps on giving. The Father has given us the Holy Spirit. And what, why is that important? Because it's the Holy Spirit that confirms that we are sons and daughters of the eternal God, the one that we can call Father, Daddy, Abba God. Listen to Paul's words in Romans 8. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. So I want to bring us just full circle to the ABCs of prayer in this prayer. That the aim of prayer is to hallow the name of the Father. To, to know that we can call him Father and hallow him um, in our life, in our attitudes, in our conduct. Next is his kingdom comes, that we submit to his good and perfect reign. So we're praying, God, hallowed be your name. We're not just looking at the evil world out there. We're looking at the evil in our hearts. We say, God, your kingdom come. We say, God, how can I bring your kingdom near to people today by serving them and loving you? And next he gives us the, the three Ps to ask for, our provision, our daily bread, our material needs. That causes us to pray for our needs and the needs of people around us and to thank him when our needs have been met. Next is our, the second P is after provision is um, our pardon. To be ones who confess our sin often and live as ones whose sin has been forgiven and to forgive others as we've been forgiven. And the next is protection. That to live and pray knowing that the evil one lurks around. He lurks around looking to uh, divide and devour and pray for protection. And know that we can come boldly and shamelessly in prayer to the Father and that we can pray in confidence because we are his sons. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you um, even for that abrupt finish to this sermon. Lord, I feel like I spoke enough and I spoke too much. There was much here. And I pray, Father in heaven, I pray that we would, whatever view that we have of you, I pray, God, that you would um, just turn our faces to you and we would see that you are a good and holy God. And I pray that you would give us an increasing desire to hallow your name in our lives. And Lord, I pray that your kingdom would come as we submit ourselves to your good and glorious reign. And Lord, I thank you that we can approach you with all of our needs, all of our requests, as they pertain to our provision and our pardon and protection. And Lord, I 
thank you that we can come boldly before the throne of grace, that the, that the veil has been torn from top to bottom, that the record of debt that stood against us has been canceled, and that we can boldly and shamelessly, no matter the time of day or no matter what's going on in our life, knowing that we're not bothering you, and we can confidently become before the throne of grace uh, as sons, as co-heirs with Christ. And Lord, we thank you for that great, great privilege. Help us be mindful um, on how to pray um, and serve and love uh, those around us. We love you. We thank you for your patience with us. Uh, we thank you for your kingdom and that we get to be a part of it. And we ask, God, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.